بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم نحمده ونصلي على رسوله الكريم أما بعد we express our praise and gratitude to Allah Ta'ala and we seek blessings upon the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam okay continuing where we left off uh, in our exploration of the Bani Israel um, let's do the screen switch And oops. okay, so hopefully you can see Surat Al Fatiha there. And once again, brace yourself for the rapid shift of screen changes. Okay, so as we've been mentioning that now the story of Bani Israel is turning very, very sour. Uh, their gratitude, ingratitude is manifesting and they've reached a point where, where humility is, is stamped upon them. Why? They were disobeying, they used to transgress the bounds and then that led to kill led them to reject the signs of Allah, reject the ayat of Allah and to kill prophets. And then we had this discussion last time about who are who are potentially the Jews, the Christians, the Sabi'in, so forth and so on. And that led into the discussion of can a non-Muslim go to paradise? And if yes, then what are you know what are the consequences in terms of action? So bring us now to Ayah 63. What if another lesson, another lesson from history of Achavna Mithaqakum? So when we took this mithaq, this pact, this covenant with you, raise Mount Tur above you. Good. And we said, hold tight to what we have given you and remember what is therein. La'allakum tattakun. This is the second time we are seeing la'allakum tattakun. So that, or hopefully, perhaps, you may get taqwa. So la'alakum tattaqun appears about four-ish times in the Quran. The first one we've already seen way back in Ayah 21, when we saw the very first command. And as I'm going there, one of the first questions we even asked about this surah uh, is, okay, this is guidance for those who have taqwa. How do I get taqwa? So this first command was also the first step towards getting taqwa. Be the Abd of your Rabb. And now we have a second step on developing taqwa, which is pretty straightforward. It is, hold tight to the Quran, hold tight to the Prophet, peace be upon him. In the context of Bani Israel, it was, what? Hold tight to what we have given you, which is the Torah, the Kitab and the Furqan, the Torah. And so, so for us, what would be a pathway to develop taqwa is to hold tight to the Qur'an. And think of all the different ways you would hold tight to it. One, of course, is recitation. Another is memorization. Another is reflection. Another is acting upon it. And then, of course, teaching it. So hold tight to what we have given you. And remember what is inside. لَعَلَّكُمْ تَتَّقُونَ so this is the pact that they're making with Allah. 
And what happened? That after that you turned away. So here's another problem in terms of the children of Israel. They made a commitment, they confirmed their commitments, and then they broke the commitments. Now think back to when we were speaking about Fisk, you know, shameless uh, 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 rebels, the Fasik. And we spoke of them. We said that Allah Ta'ala does not mislead any, does not let any go astray, except for the people of Fisk. And we define three attributes of the people of Fisk, the people, the Fasiks. This is I 27 28. Number one, they break their pact with Allah after having confirmed it. Here it is right here. In that context, we spoke about breaking your fitrah, the commitment you made with your fitrah. When Allah Ta'ala asked all of us in pre-eternity, pre-eternity Am I not your Rabb? And we all confirmed. And so we spoke of that at one level, would be to break that commitment. Another level is right here. They're making a, a pact with Allah, and now they're breaking it. Now the key is breaking it without justification. And, and so Allah Ta'ala says later on in the Quran, this is in the context of ayahs about divorce, but it's also taken as a universal that Allah Ta'ala will not hold you to account for an oath you make without thinking about it, where your heart is not in it. But here they're confirming it and later on uh, they're making the pact and later on it says that they even confirmed it. Yeah, we are absolutely serious about this. But then look what it says. Had it not been for the fadl and the rahmah of Allah upon you. Had it not been for the fadl of Allah upon you and his rahmah. So they had entered a path of misguidance. And what does it say in I-28? This is the path of the losers. And so they should have gone down that path, but Allah Ta'ala gave them more fadl and he gave them more rahmah. Here fadl is translated as grace. Uh, anyone else, how would you translate fadl? I would, I would literally call it like favors. You know, this person says grace. Okay. But uh, I'll let anyone chime in for, for alternate translations of fadl. Or not. Uh, I, favor. Yeah. Uh, Iqbal, what are you saying? The fadl is something somebody give you and out of it asking something in return. So infinite mm-hmm. bounty given okay, so, it to you. So favor. Would favor work for you? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, inshallah. Yeah, and so what is a lesson for you and I to take from this? Every time I step off the right path, which could be any time I do a sin by an action or a sin by not doing something I'm supposed to do, I have stepped off the right path. And it's nothing but the rahmah of Allah upon me that I still remain on the right path. Meaning, what is the proper uh, approach? If I commit a sin, all of us commit sins. The proper approach is that I should follow it up with a good deed. I should seek forgiveness with Allah. 
and try not to repeat the action. Now, uh, there's many times where I didn't do that. I did a wrong action and just continued on with life. And we're saying the reality is that it's nothing but a favor from Allah that I'm kept on the straight path. Uh, yes, no, were you about to say something? We're not. Okay. So, so this is a point for, for me to consider for myself. It is literally a favor from Allah that I didn't go further astray. So then we have this interesting story, and we're going to now be revisiting the conversation on miracles. Okay, so you know those amongst you who cross the boundaries on the matter of the Sabbath. Okay. Now, uh, I think most of you are familiar with the backstory. First, we're just looking at the ayah itself. There are people who cross the boundaries on the matter of the Sabbath, and then Allah Ta'ala said to them, Okay, be these despised, rejected apes. Okay. So, so they broke a rule. Okay, there was this party of people that broke a rule, and then Allah cursed them. Okay. Now, let's look at this in backstory, and then let's look at this in terms of the, of the lesson or the fact of what happened. So I think most of you are familiar with the backstory. This is a group of people that they're supposed to be observing their Sabbath on Saturday, and they're fishermen, and it just so happens to be that they notice that all week long, there's no fish coming, but for some reason, tide or something else, the fish come close to the shore while they're in worship. And so according to one story, one version of the story, they build a net, a series of nets to catch all these fish. According to another version of the story, they, they, they dug a trough at the edges of the shore, so when the fish come, they get stuck inside the trough. And, and so they're in worship all day long, but technically they're all still working. And so in their rules of the Sabbath for the whole day, from sundown to sundown, so from our clock, Maghrib to Maghrib, they're not supposed to be working, but they still did. They found a loophole, and thus they were cursed for it. What did they do wrong? If they found a loophole, technically they didn't break the rules, or did they? What do you all think? So they defied the command. They broke the spirit of the law. Yeah, with, uh, with law, you have the letter of the law, and then you have the spirit of the law. So, for example, the equivalent in our sharia is the difference between the usul and the maqasid. So in terms of usul al-fiqh, this is our sharia. So the process of deriving interpretation, you have a couple, a couple parts. One is the actual usul. Plus, you have the maqasid. Plus, you have orf. And then this leads to your answer. Okay. 
So Usul is essentially the letter of the text. What does the ayah say that's relevant? What is the hadith say that's relevant? Do we, is the text categorically clear or is it sort of hazy? And so that's one circle of understanding. Then the maqasid is the spirit of the scripture. So the letter of the text here would be ayahs and hadith. And scripture here would be the whole body of the Quran in the Sunnah. Okay. And then Orf is your local common, we like to say normative practice. Okay. And that's where you're using to derive fatwa. And so Asul also includes what we call the Qawaid although some people might categorize it over here. So what are the qawaid? What are the maxims? This is taking ayahs and universalizing them. Easiest example of that is we have the numerous hadith, actions are judged by intentions. And so we have different hadith giving different parts of that event where the prophet peace be upon him is saying actions are judged by intentions. Also from that, we develop a maxim, a principle that, all right, when you have an action, you want to look at what is the motive, what is the goal. Yeah. So <clears throat> this, if I bypass the usul for the maqasid, meaning if I'm focusing on the spirit of the law without engaging with the text of the law, then chances are I'm doing something wrong. Because in the maqasid, I can get away with almost anything. So part of the idea of the maqasid, the higher aims of Islamic law, um, what gets concluded is that, okay, part of the spirit of law is preservation of life, preservation of deen, preservation of wealth, preservation of intellect, preservation of lineage, preservation of, of dignity. And it goes on and on and on. Those are the most common ones everyone always quotes. And so if someone comes to me with a question, I can in say, okay, am I allowed to do such and such? Okay, I might just list everything as preservation of deen. Yeah, we need to save his deen. Go ahead, you can do it. No haram, right? I can, I can justify anything and everything. And so part of the idea of the qawaid is to try, is to sort of keep that under control. And so the people of the Sabbath, they technically did not break the rule of the law, the letter of the law, but they did break the spirit of the law. Meaning you're not supposed to work. And what was clear or what's in the story is they knew what they were doing. So that's one part of the story. Second part, what do you think? Do you think they were literally turned into monkeys? Yes or no? So, Omar? Yeah. What? Uh, you, you in the in your whiteboard you did not mention anything about fatwa. Fatwa can be local too, right? Um, I want to say yes, but I feel like your question has more than that. Uh, please explain further. 
Now you mentioned the asar can be local. So fatwa can be local too, right? I mean, uh, if someone giving a fatwa for some something in Pakistan, which is not impacted or related here in USA, right? Well, I mean, like as, as a general principle, like uh, if uh, if I'm going to someone for for an opinion or legal opinion, a fatwa, they have to know my culture inside and out, and and so it could be. Mm-hmm that mm-hmm. the answer is for my specific situation only, nobody else, not even anybody else in my household. Or it could be that it's for everybody who's living in Chicago, right? Or it could be for everyone who is on the globe. That really, that really varies depending upon the issue. Does that make sense? Right, so that what you're saying, that means that in, in today's society, the giving of fatwa is absolutely not possible or very hard to be a possible or un- until unless you have a council of fear or something like that, right? Uh, to make a decision I, collectively. Uh, I don't understand because, why. Because you're knowing about every, uh, bit, I, I mean, giving a fatwa yeah. for, for, you know, if you say, if you follow what you're saying, your guideline, you have to know absolutely about everything about the current or local environment. Mm-hmm. It's not easy, right, for a single person. Well, I mean, it depends on the issue. That. I'm just thinking out loud. There's no question. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, right. it's no, no one's going to be omniscient, obviously. But, um, uh, you know, a student comes to my office with a particular issue. Uh, and, you know, uh, I, I know them in terms of their environment. I know the Loyola situation. I know the student population and such. If it's an issue like that, then that's a very, very specific context. You know, but if I'm contacting a sheikh in Karachi, you know, for an issue over here, you know, my, my child is not listening to me about who to marry. Okay, that person in Karachi uh, is probably not going to be qualified for me to answer their question. Um, but a person here in Chicago uh, will probably be much more qualified. Now, suppose I get this fatwa from this person, I might go to a second person for a second opinion. That's perfectly fine, you know. Uh, hmm. You know, so like if you go to, uh, uh, you know, I mean, well, basically, if you if you go to to multiple scholars that you trust, you might get multiple different opinions, um, and that works, right? But if we're looking for every answer for every aspect of life, that's a little bit different. You know, I'm speaking more on a case by case. Yeah, basis. no, I'm just, I'm just, I mean, this, this is. Yeah, what what you're discussing here is a little bit related to what Zeba and I have been discussing this morning. That you know, there's a there's a gap between all the fiqh imams and and Muhammad right? And like a couple of hundred years, and then you know what what are the Muslims on the, those times are making their decision and how they're making a decision because the the okay, Islamic so state is getting bigger and larger and larger. If you're talking about like Abu Hanifa, Imam Malik, and all those people, yeah, there's a gap um, about 150 years ish, but they're all learning from people, you know, who who go all the way back, right? So where the first fatwas yeah. coming from? They're coming from the Sahaba, right? And then and then you have this next round, these Tabi'in, that are sort of the next round of people giving fatwas, right? So like in Medina, there's seven people that are considered to be the official jurists of Medina. 
And then, and so that's continuing. It's just that the schools of those four people, those are the ones that have lasted. The other schools have either uh, vanished or they've been incorporated in these four schools. See what we're saying? Okay. Yeah, thank you. Okay, okay inshallah. Okay, so, so the next question for, for all of you is, uh, were they actually turned into apes? Why or why not? Can I ask you a question before this? Yeah, so, go for it. Uh, on this ayah, uh, for me, it was always hard to understand that. Um, so f let's say somebody um, did it, somebody intentionally did not want to break the the law and they came up with something so for example let's say these people came up with this trap to catch the fish they weren't working but uh and then why would somebody punish them but i guess the uh the the uh, their their sin was that they knowingly like they knew that they were no, not even allowed to do this and then they did that and because of that they were punished what do you think uh, so I would say essentially we're, including myself, we're assuming that part of the issue is that they know they knew exactly what they were doing, right? They tried to work their way around the law. Now, in terms of if this was our Sharia, okay, uh, perhaps we, we can make an argument that, all right, uh, we have come to this conclusion to the best of our ability that this is what you need to do. And what does the Prophet say, peace be upon him? If the mujtahid is coming to a conclusion and it's wrong, you still get rewarded. Okay. And if it is correct, you get double reward. So it's possible that our sharia operates differently than their sharia. But looking at their sharia through the lens of ours, uh, I would infer that there is intention happening here, that uh, they know that they're doing something that they're not supposed to be doing. And so what's the deeper issue here? that we can argue that they're in worship all day long, but they don't have trust that Allah is gonna give them food. See what I'm saying? That at least one thing that should come out by worship, repeated worship is I should have increased trust that Allah Ta'ala is taking care of me. They're in worship all day long and they're still not uh, having this uh, confidence in Allah. What do you think, Basir? Okay, I think uh, I think your last statement really made sense. That uh, that maybe it was that this sept was was uh, uh, was somehow either explicitly or uh, implicitly supposed to teach them that yeah, don't work, you know, depend on Allah, and Allah will provide you. And maybe these word wordings also give us some clue where uh, though meaning like uh, they transgressed and transgressing happens when you knowingly pass certain boundaries. So uh, maybe we don't know parts of the story that, I mean, that tell us explicitly that uh, they knew uh, that they were breaking this. Uh, this mm -hmm. story is mentioned other parts in Quran, but I think even there it's, it doesn't, give the detail that whether they, they intentionally did it or not. But I guess from here we can drive that, that they, they transgress certain boundary mm -hmm. that they were told not to transgress. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, that's how I'd read it. And then relating this to the discussions we had, I think it was yesterday, it might have been the day before. Uh, the question I was raising is when scholars are going through a process of, of coming to answers, uh, and they're going through a rational process of coming to answers, a part of the concern is their own character, their own iman. If my goal is to help figure out what is best in your relationship with Allah, then that becomes my challenge to figure out what is best in my relationship with Allah. So I'm going to give you an upright, uh, inshallah, answer. If my goal is to keep my job, then I might be giving you an answer that could textually be, be sound, yet the actual intention is for me to keep my job. And so here, I'd even suggest once again, the challenge uh, would be on what is the condition of the scholars at the time. So we had the scholars of the other day who were told to do sajda and say hittaton, and then they did literally the opposite. And so there's an amount of corruption that's taking place. Uh, okay, so, so other thoughts. Did they turn into apes? Let's look at some of the comments. Okay. Uh, okay, Basir, I think you're saying yes, they turned into apes. Uh, okay, Stephanie Mirza is saying yes, regarding creation, Allah says be, and it is. That's exactly one of the arguments that's given. And, and they were turned into apes. Sami is saying, no, they were not. Um, and a couple, uh, uh, the ayah, the uh, next ayah says that they were made as an example for themselves and succeeding generations. If they had succeeding generations that were humans and able to comprehend the lesson, then they, could ha they would have been humans. Okay, interesting. But what if we say uh, they had children that were humans, but they themselves were turned into apes? Uh, and so, yeah, this is related to Stephanie Marissa's point. Uh, it, uh, it could have been the transgressors who went, uh, who went ape. <laughs> the others would have seen this as a lesson. And your thoughts? If it was easy, I'd do a poll to see how many people said they turned into apes. I think I, I, I made reference to this once before. I was in this interfaith conversation, and there was this other Muslim. Uh, yeah, really, really to what you're saying, Mohammed. There's this, someone asked a question about evolution and then this one guy, Hafiz kid, right profession, he's an engineer or something, but he was very Hafizy. Anyway, anyways, anyway, so, hey, yeah. Professor um, Omar, there is a biblical parallel um, okay. to this, apparently in Numbers 11, um, 19 to 20, um, is a punishment, the same backstory. Um, with slight variations, they were forced to eat of the, you know, for a whole month until it comes out of your nostrils. Okay. It. So they basically uh, were punished in this horrible way uh, in the Bible and um, became animal like. Interesting. And so I guess it could be a reference to something like that. Okay. Yeah. Works for me. So yeah, yeah. So so the, the the story I was mentioning is that this interfaith dialogue. Someone asked about evolution, and uh, the Muslim speaker, who was also sitting next to me, said, "Because of this ayah, apes are actually coming from humans, not the other way around." And I don't think I spoke for the rest of that evening. Anyway, so so uh, yeah, this this uh, Dr. Mahan, this this uh, this makes sense. So those who are hesitant to, uh, to say that they became apes, why? It seems like they did turn to apes since it shows a command, not just a narration. Yeah, perhaps. Yeah. 
The question I'd like us to consider, because I've asked this many, many times, if one is because it doesn't happen. Okay, that's a fair point. You, you don't run across people turning into apes. Uh, there was a period of time when I used to see apes, and I used to wonder, are these the descendants of, of those people? Uh, I'm going to suggest part of, of, of the issue that we wrestle with is that why is it easy to believe that the sea split for Musa into two mountains of water, but it is not as easy to believe that this population was turned into apes. And I think we discussed this way back in the first course. I'm suggesting it's because it's already a common belief in our society that the sea split. It's a common belief in our society that Jesus was born without a father, right, without a human father. And, and thus, those things are easy for us to embrace and to claim. <clears throat> Whereas this, even aside from, from those passages in Numbers, this is not a common belief in our society, and so we get hesitant to, to, to make the claim that they were turned into apes. Uh, what do you all think? Do you agree or disagree with my hypothesis? I think it, it depends, uh, you know, like it's easy to, easy to say, um, I think in, even in the last class you mentioned this, that, uh, um, that because we have, uh, it's like, it's been something that has been coming down like uh, before. So that's why we, we, we don't hesitate. Whereas in other things uh, we do, um, but sometimes it depends who you are talking to. If we are talking to a scientist who is an evolutionist, uh, then you know, like sometimes you're gonna be really thinking yourself, did it really happen or not? Because you know they really beat down the Christians on this whole evolution mm -hmm. thing. So sometimes um, maybe things happen in in a different way, uh, and the the words of Quran may support that, but your understanding is just stuck to one one. Uh, one understanding of the word. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's definitely part of it. And what else is being said? Alexander saying also due to sensationalism or sentimentalism, what we see in movies. Uh, if you could ex if you could expand on that point, uh, Stephanie Alexander, uh, to I think I understand, but please explain further. Moment: Humans have a soul, and apes are animals, so that the alternate alternate alteration of the essence of those people into animals seems more severe than the defiance of gravity. Okay, interesting. Uh, that uh, that um, that this seems like a bigger uh, a bigger thing. So, what would be another example? Uh, uh, so, you're saying so even the splitting of the moon would be less than humans being turned into apes? Yeah, moment. Yeah. Right. Let's see. So ultimately, were they turned into apes or not? That is for us, again, secondary. I have no problem believing that they were turned into apes. I think it's kind of a fascinating idea and maybe it's because of, of me watching too many movies. Uh, uh, but what is, we, we've already addressed what seems to be the lesson of the event. The lesson of the event is that they tried to play with the rules and then they got in trouble. Even let's think about the splitting of the sea. How high does that rank in terms of me obligated to believe that that happened? If we look in the history of the tradition, you know, we have, so 
primary theology is to believe la ilaha illallah Muhammad Rasulullah. Okay, this doesn't apply there. And then secondary, what is common secondary is you know, Iman Mujmal, Iman Mufassal, Amantu Billahi wa Malaikati wa Kutubi wa Rasuli, so forth and so on. I believe in Allah and the angels and the books and the messengers, so forth and so on. Or I believe in Allah with all of his attributes and commands and aspire to, to fulfill them with my tongue and my heart. If we go uh, lower, then we get into, for example, the Aqidah of the Aqidah text, like the Aqidah of Imam Tahawi. And there, uh, I don't think either the mentioning of the splitting of the sea, and definitely not this is there. It is an obligation to believe in the night journey, according to that text, that it was a physical event. And so I'm even suggesting in the scale of things, uh, obligation to believe in these events as literal is not as high. But the majority opinion is literal for, for most of these things. Although here, uh, uh, B-Apes apparently may have been an idiom at the time of the Prophet, peace be upon him, in the same way with Abu Lahab, Dabbat Yada was an idiom uh, uh, at, at, in their time, in the way we would say something like, go jump in the lake, go to hell. Here, it was not uncommon to say, may your hands be perished. There's a, there's a, a funny-ish moment where uh, the Prophet, peace be upon him, is having a conflict of sorts with Aisha, radiallahu anha, and he, has some, he says something like, may your hands break, and then he leaves, then he comes back, and he sees her looking at her hands, and he asks her, what are you doing? And, he, and she said, well, you said, may your hands break, and so I was waiting for, for it to happen. So it was a figure of speech. Uh, if they return into apes, Umar al-Khadr says, uh, wouldn't there be much more talk about it culturally? <coughs> and it would be more common, like the splitting of the sea? Uh, perhaps, uh, but this seemed to be focused on one specific small population in the whole, in the whole group. Uh, but I think your argument is still worth considering. Uh, Ofats, I remember watching an Arabic cartoon that depicted this as them literally turning into monkeys. I somehow believe that that is absolutely very common. In fact, uh, I forgot when this was, this is like 10 years ago, I don't know how often it happens. There is another round of conversation uh, between Hamas and, and the state of Israel. And the head of Hamas says, we can't trust these people, they were turned into apes. And I suspect part of it was just to speak it as an insult to the people of, of uh, you know, the, the occupying nation. Uh, let's see, I wonder what the Jews say about it. I did ask some rabbis, and I don't recall actually the answer that, that they gave me, but I think it was in the context of that exact event. Um, it was one of the sieges that uh, Israel was doing uh, uh, over Gaza. Uh, uh, so I-266 will be looking at that. If everyone in that society became apes, there'd be no way to know because we only know about it through revelation and apes themselves wouldn't likely report it. Fair enough. So it would be fair to say not everyone was turned into apes. Okay, any other thoughts, reflections? Uh, so, I think it's mentioned in Quran that there were, there were uh, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala describes like two party, one was trying to stop them from what they were doing. One didn't, one said, you know, there's no point doing it. Uh, so Allah Subhanahu wa Taala said, "We we put we get, uh, we saved the one who were trying to uh, 
to tell them to stop <clears throat> doing it. So I guess from that story, we can drive that there, there were people who, um, who were stopping them. Uh, so not all of that community became apes. Uh, see if you can find where that passage is. Uh, uh, I don't recall that part of it, um, but um, okay. Any other questions or thoughts? All right, let us stop right here and we will continue tomorrow. And I was hoping to get into the discussion, a little bit more discussion about miracles, but it'll be relevant for IS 66, inshallah, tomorrow. And uh, we'll stop right here otherwise. Uh, I'll say I have a question from an older class. Feel free to either type or speak. Um, when we were talking about the, how the ayahs are not in chronological order, can we say that what if is like a new instance or like a different part of the story that we're jumping to? So I look at it as a different instance. So, so when we looked at the story of origins, you know, Adam and Eve, peace be upon them, and, and um, the accursed devil, we had what is, I think, like three times. And so I looked at that as just essentially, uh, these are three different moments that the Quran happens to, that, that, uh, that Allah puts together. Um, and so then there's some other common thread that we can also derive from a number of lessons being put together. So there's the lesson of the ayah on its own, there's the what if uh, section, and then all those put together, you know, it gives us another dimension. Make sense? Yes, so then how in the story of Musa's, Musa do we know when Musa is there and when he isn't? Like when we're saying the part of the town when they're, when they're told to go prostrating, how do we know that Musa isn't there? We don't. No, it's uh, uh, this is uh, external sources, and and much of it, much of that material is coming from Israeli sources, so sources of Jews and Christians. Okay, Iqbal, you have a question from yesterday. So regarding the uh, ayah about the Jews, Christian, and Sabian, uh, so 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 tafsir that. Uh, uh, the scholar, Dr. Strayer, uh, I don't know who other has any opinion like him. Uh, so Ayah 50, Ayah 47, according to him, there is a parenthesis starts here. Okay. Goes all the way to the Ayah, I forgot what Ayah, but before that, there's some multiplier and then multipliers are Ayah 40 to 46. Okay. Which basically telling that okay, whatever is coming down here, everything applies to this multiplier, which is forty to forty-six. Okay. So in which the believing if of the prophet is a must for anyone to 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 be forgiven to get to go to the jannah. Mm -hmm. uh, but I still have to see the other opinion, other tafasirs from other scholars if they have the same opinion. Oh, okay, so go ahead. Yeah, so I'm just saying that, uh, are you aware of any of these uh, uh, multiplier or anything? Okay, so I'm not, I'm confused by the use of the word multiplier, but let me see if I understand the point that you're leading to, is that uh, because you have to have belief in the Prophet, peace be upon him, then IS-62 is only referring to pre-Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him. I think that's what you're saying. Uh, no, no, what I'm saying is, 
So I of 47 is assuming there is an algebraic equation and a, a parenthesis starts here at 47. Okay. Before that, there is an X multiplier and that X multiplier is I of 40 to 46. Okay. This parenthesis, which is start at 47, finishes at the I of where, and again, the uh, the ayah comes in the later part that uh, we give the Faddal to Rabbil Alameen. The second second time it mentioned about the, given the, all the Faddal all over the world, right? Mm -hmm. That's where it closes the bracket. So anything in between, he arguing that everything is applied, multiplied by X, which is all these ayahs. So hence, the ayah that talks about the Sabine and Christian and Jews also imply that they must believe in Prophet Muhammad as well in order to go to the... Okay, I think, I think that's still making the same point that, that, that I'm inferring, uh, that, uh, that Jews, Christians, Sabians, uh, Sabi'in, uh, from the Prophet's time and beyond would have to believe in the Prophet, peace be upon him, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think that works. So essentially, what you're saying then is, is that Ayah 62 is saying that those people can get paradise who are before Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him. They believe in Allah the last day, but after Prophet Muhammad, they have to believe in the Prophet, peace be upon him. Okay, clear. Yeah, uh, I think, uh, I mean, uh, that, is, that is how I understand it. Um, and that it, that's, for Ayah 62, that seems to be the common tafsir. Uh, uh, I'd have to, I'd suggest looking at the tafsir for that ayah we looked at also from Surat al-Ma'idah, and I forgot what number it is, it's like 63 or 68 or something. Uh, that's almost the same ayah to see if the commentaries say the same thing. That's something I haven't looked at in a while, so I'd have to look that up. Uh, Ahant, you had a question. Yes. Um... Assalamu alaikum, by the way. <laughs> um, earlier you were mentioning how the, you know, when they were asking for something less than what they had, and that was the, and ingratitude being a, a source of that. Can that be, you know, correlated to when they were turned into monkeys, them, uh, them um, turning into less than, something that they already were oh interesting uh perhaps uh so it's as though maybe they weren't physically turned into monkeys but maybe what they were the the end result is that they became lower of a lower level of dignity and then yeah. that could also fit with the the passage that dr mahan quoted from from numbers that they're still human but now they're behaving at a level uh, that's far below their dignity yeah that's possible I think that would be a natural consequence in the long term of ingratitude anyway, because you're essentially turning away from what Allah Ta'ala is giving you and turning towards things that uh, uh, are in creation but are not as good. So it would be like someone who has the offer for delicious, for a delicious orange and they're picking alcohol or let's keep it halal they have an, op an, an option for a delicious orange, but instead they pick Cheetos. You know? mm -hmm. And then imagine that over the course of a lifetime. So. And, you know, as we can see, there are so many different readings to this. Is there a majority like, opinion on this? I mean, is that a fair question to ask? Or is that just, you know, one of the, the beauties of the, you know, so, of the 
So that is a, an absolutely relevant question to ask. You know, what are what are majority opinions? Is there a majority opinion? How do the opinions over the years, you know, how do they split up? And and so in some cases things will seem to be unanimous, like La ilaha illallah Muhammad Rasulullah, right? That's pretty unanimous. No God but God and what that means. But then on these types of issues, uh, the lesson I think is very, very straightforward. Uh, but in terms of the details of what happened historically, it's literally going to be speculation. And so there's going to be majority opinion, minority opinion, or things might be split up. That's, that's, uh, sometimes those are called civilizational generation generating questions or a generative question, something like that, where the actual debate is creating the whole, the whole civilization. And that I think is, is really, really fun that it's, you know, you have your opinion, I have mine, but the fact of the engagement is what makes the community grow. A lot of times we think that, you know, everybody must be unified in every opinion. No, a lot of times the opinions in the community is much better shaped when you have multiple opinions. You know, even, uh, so, so easy question for everybody. Uh, what is the first revelation that the prophet peace be upon him received? Yeah. Almost all of you are gonna say Iqra, right? That's majority opinion. And then what's second, third, fourth, fifth? Those are like matters of majority versus minority opinion. So it is not unanimous opinion that that's the first revelation he received. It's majority opinion. At the level of the masses, that that's taken to be law. But in the actual history. Now, a second issue, uh, when uh, Jibreel came to him, was he in the form of a human? majority opinion. Another opinion is that he came to the Prophet peace on him as light. And even the part of hugging him, it's this light that is speaking to him and hugging him. I think that's, that's pretty fun to, to, to explore because it gives us other dimensions on how all of this works. So, so what, are, uh, what are other opinions? Other opinions is that the, the first revelation is Surah Al-Fatiha, another first revelation is Surah Muddathir Muddamil, Muddathir Muddamil. Uh, those are also uh, lesser opinions for the first revelation. Also, I think uh, either Surah Qaf uh, or, uh, you know, it's another one of those Surahs, Qaf or Nun. Any other questions? Someone sounds like they're about to speak, but I can't see who it is. Uh, <clears throat> so, uh, a question, um, do you think in, in certain circumstances, um, the, uh, the spirit, uh, that is in the, uh, the ahadith, um, is kind of misinterpreted as taken as literal, especially in terms of uh, I think our ulama for a long time grappled with the understanding of Prophet Hadith that only Quraysh would be the leaders or your your Khalifas. Uh, then uh, it was um, uh, there. There. Uh, what? What else was it? So. Uh, so sometimes. Oh, so recent one is. Uh, Prophet's order, uh, uh, his his uh, strong uh, uh, opinion about uh, uh, your 
um, your uh, clots being dragged below your knees or okay. below, below your ankles. Mm-hmm. Uh, so those type of things, th- there is a spirit that that it is trying to uh, to live, which is um, you know to avoid arrogance and and it expresses in different ways in in every society. So sometimes in general population or even in scholars, that literal uh, is more important than the spirit. And mm-hmm. so the spirit gets left out mm-hmm. uh, from there. Okay, I think I, I, I understand your question. So uh, I'll, uh, one way I'd answer this is that when we look at the training of an alim, the training of a scholar, that person is usually not trained in usul. Uh, usually for matters of law and such, they go to these books that are about 400 years old and that's where their fatwas come from or interpretations of these books that are about 400 years old and such, uh, whether we're talking about Hanafi or Shafi, et cetera, et cetera. And, and so then someone of more advanced training is going to be trained in the whole process of usul, usul al-fiqh. And so that person will often give uh, uh, a, a more... Uh, uh, complex uh, answer. And then even the same person, uh, when they start out, often their answers are going to be, you know, really far to the right or to the left, really far to the conservative side or really, really far to the liberal side. And then at, through years of answering questions and looking at life on the ground, then their answers become more and more precise. So I think it's a number of just straight, straight up real world factors that affect a lot of that, that a lot of times what we are experienced at the lay level, what we experience at the lay level of scholars and their opinions of these things are scholars that are certified as alims, but their, their training is not that advanced in terms of the interpretation of the material. The training is in being able to quote the material. And then more advanced training is an in interpretation. Does that make sense? Yeah, sure. Any other questions about anything? I think that, what Basit is saying is, um, what Basit is saying, I think, is is he saying that, you know, the, there is no progression has been made? Um, because see, if you see the, or the understanding was not sound, I, I don't understand this question. So, so easy example is that, okay, when you go to a masjid uh, on, on Devon Avenue, what, is, what do all the men do before, uh, right before the, the prayer starts? They all start rolling up their pants. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right? Where is that coming from? I, w- I was thinking about which masjid you're talking about. Yeah, yeah, there's like seven of them there. But I think this is probably the case in every single one of them. You know? And, yeah. and so, so they're rolling up their pants. That was not the same. That was not happening when I was a kid at the same masjids. This is something that literally started increasing in the last 30 years. Huh. And, and so where is it coming from? So the Prophet, peace be upon him, is saying, if you let your feet drag, then that's a sign of arrogance. And of course, Abu Bakr says, well, my clothes, if you let your clothes drag, and Abu Bakr says, my clothes drag, and the prophet says, well, you're not, you're not arrogant. And, and so that somehow translated to a step that people must do before they pray. Okay. And this is across Chicago, at least, in terms of Desti majority masjids. And you don't find scholars correcting people. And so I think this is sort of what, uh, what Basir is, is talking about. That would be one example. And, and we have other examples of things like that, you know. But I think, I think that, that that's, that's more, more like a social issues as well as that, you know, the, 
the anxiety that you know i don't know if if i have to stop someone is he belong he or she belong to a different school of thought or not well, uh, I mean, so so like if because you know in pakistan you know that's has happened to all the time right you go to pray without topi and like 17 different people going to put the topi on your head oh yeah, i told you i had this exact experience Right. So, yeah. so, I was the only guy there with a beard, but uh, everyone made sure I had a topi. Yeah. And then, and then you know, after the after the salah, they're ganging up on you right outside the masjid and making sure that you know you you next time you pray with the whole imam, amama, and topi. So, so I mean, because I think that's the, this is this is more like a social fabric of that, right? In USA or in the north Western society, people don't want to bother to get into the, some other some. someone else as business right so they want to stay away from that and on most of the scholars and imams we have in our at least in east coast and midwest area they all actually i mean now we have to see the change the trend right like imam noman qari noman or imam asfar they are coming locally but other like actually all from coming from indian pakistan so they are like under some kind of like complex situation that you know not to stop anyone yeah but so my, sorry uh, yeah go ahead basir my point was uh, you're right in terms of social norms yeah that, that's a good point uh, that over here people don't step into other people's place uh, but my uh, my uh, uh, point was that sometimes a lot of times uh, we take things especially lay, laymen uh lay people we take things literally and we uh sort of neglect the spirit so the spirit of this order was to to not have arrogance and we if we take that spirit we should try to avoid the arrogance no matter where we are uh and you know things can uh uh, uh a spirit can be taken out from that hadith to when your prophet said you know only quraish would be your leaders because they were the one who were accepted as leaders at that time so mm-hmm. uh you know a lot of times we have to look at a hadith and try to really understand or even in quran try to understand what it's really saying and how can i really apply it in in my in my times yeah yeah and so this this will go back to my point about what is the the, the type of interpretive training that a person has received what you're also both mentioning and this is something after uh uh related to a lot of the work that Dr. Mahan had been doing in in his projects at Notre Dame is that all these things also do have historical con- uh context uh in terms of why is this happening now and different issues are taking place you know 300 years ago that today we regard as as law uh but like even imam al-bukhari the way you know which is the second most central book of our whole tradition um uh, if you look at the commentaries of on, on imam al-bukhari you know from from centuries ago they're saying he organized this book to respond against such and such theological school or he 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 put this like this to respond against this other issue although we're reading it as a universal text to be applied all at all times exactly as is and so all that gets into the 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 challenge of of uh of, of having methods for interpretation. Yeah, yeah, you're right. I think and on to your point about, you know, this uh, the Madrasa project which Mahan is doing. I think that's that's going to be a good time that we need to have a like a boot camp like we did for the Renaissance led by Mahan someday. Yeah, yeah, yeah Dr. Mahan might have to also teach a course inshallah. Yeah. 
And finishing off, any other last questions about anything, anything at all? <laughs> Make sure yeah, you should see uh, Dr. Kazi's uh, text to me that I should move the camera so you can see whether or not I'm wearing a pocket protector. Maybe I will just for Dr. Kazi, inshallah. Yeah. Any other questions? Alrighty, we will stop right here, inshallah, and we will continue to, what's a pocket protector? Seriously, they don't have pocket protectors? Oh, you don't even have pens. Good, so why would you have a pocket protector? All right. I used to watch Steve Urkel. Say it again, Steve Urkel? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All righty. Subhanakallahumma bihamdika nashadu la ilaha illa anta nastaghfirullahi wa Subhanakallahumma bihamdika nashadu la ilaha illa anta nastaghfirullahi wa Subhanakallahumma bihamdika nashadu la ilaha illa anta nastaghfirullahi wa Trying to keep a straight face here. Wa ahri da'wana and alhamdulillah. Rabbil alameen. I'll tell you all. Assalamu alaikum. Assalamu alaikum.